Welcome to Think Oral, where we connect the unconnected between oral and physical health. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Levine. And I'm your host, Maria Filipova. Let's get at it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Think Oral Health podcast. We are delighted to talk to you today and delighted to introduce you to another thought partner and conversation partner for us. As usual, I'm joined by my co-host and partner in crime, Dr. Jonathan Levine. We are delighted because we have a heavy Boston presence at the podcast today. Both myself and our guest today are dialing in from Boston or Cambridge. Both myself and our guest today consider ourselves a bit of uh, change agents and rebels are not afraid of taking the non-traditional path or expressing a non-traditional opinion. This is somebody who I don't know many thought leaders and leaders in dentistry who went to both hygiene school and dental school, who have successfully been able to thrive in academia as a state dental director, and as part of a private practice. And so I'm so excited to be able to welcome our guest today. I will not reveal who that is. I will give Jonathan the distinct pleasure to tell us all about her accolades and titles and roles. But Jonathan, why don't you introduce us to the guest today? Oh, I would love to, and it's my pleasure. Well, Catherine Hayes is emblematic of the concept and the thinking of humility and competence. She's a very special person. I've gotten to know Catherine. She is the chair of the Department of Oral Health Policy and Epidemiology. Not only that, program director of the Advanced Graduate Education Program in Public Health, and she runs a bunch of other departments under public health. She's one busy human, I must say. She was the former dental director of Mass Health, the Massachusetts Medicaid and CHIP program, former interim dental director of the Office of the Public Health. There's a lot that Catherine Hayes has done, and we're so excited to have her on this podcast because as we look at the disparity in oral health, she is at the center of that conversation of educating the next aspiring leaders in public health at Harvard, and just so excited to go after these conversations of how change is happening and how do we change where we are today from a standpoint of the oral health crisis that is really a global issue. And so wonderful, wonderful, Catherine, to have you on our Think Oral Health podcast. Great to have you here. I'm so delighted to be here with both of you. Welcome, Catherine. We're so happy. Uh, So where do we start? Where do we dig in? You're public health dentist impacting change at scale. So if you could pick one area that you think is prime for change that would have disproportionate impact on cost or quality or access of those underserved populations we all talk about, where would you go? What would be that one first starting place? I think the first starting place would be looking at the gap between services that young children receive in the medical versus dental office. So data shows pretty clearly that youngest children under age two or so more than 90% see a physician on a regular basis and fewer than 10% see a dentist. Not surprising because it just hasn't been our normal practice to have these kids see a dentist at a young age. There is lots of policy and lots of guidelines about creating a dental home for a child by age one, but it's really not happening and there's a lot of confusion around it. 
And what happens is if, if the children don't see a dentist or don't have any kind of preventive care early in life, and their parents and caregivers aren't educated about how to prevent oral disease, what we see in this country and actually globally as well is that kids under the age of five are going under general anesthesia to have treatment for a completely preventable condition, dental caries. It is much less expensive to prevent this disease. It really costs pennies on the dollar. When you talk about routine exams, fluoride varnish, education, you can keep a child caries free. But what happens invariably is that kids don't see a dentist until they're more like school age. Yeah. And so now there's this whole period of time that they are prone to pretty extensive decay. And unfortunately, what we see is kids with almost every tooth in their mouth with severe decay. So there's unnecessary pain and suffering for the child and unnecessary cost to the system. And that's something we can really look at. What is, I mean, as parents, and we're speaking to all the parents out there, nobody wants to see their child go under anesthesia for preventable disease. I also remember reading a statistic that if we need to be the models for our children, because if we as parents go to the dental office or do preventative services or take on preventative services, our children are 30% more likely to do the same. So we have to set the example, lead by example as a parent. But I can imagine the issue, the barrier to access for parents is not their willingness to go or awareness. It's probably closer to access and cost. Tell us more about those barriers. Yeah, I think we can look at things such as cost, transportation, which are traditionally some of the highest barriers. But let's think you have an individual who has full coverage with Medicaid, for example, there's still a lot of barriers and a lot of those barriers are systematic. So for example, having appointments only available nine to five yeah. when people are working and it's hard for them to take time away from work. So having more convenient hours for people, I think is really important. And also really having it, this be something that's integrated fully into their medical visit. So they're hearing from their physician how important this is. And so with young kids, that's important. It's also important with, as you said, everyone across the lifespan. So I think raising the awareness of the impact of oral health and overall health, and these were findings from the Surgeon General's report in 2000 and the most recent oral health report of 2021, that there's still not a general understanding amongst the public about this impact of oral health on general health. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I think we as a profession haven't done a great job. You know, there's a wonderful public health campaign from several years ago. It was called Back to Sleep. And it was a campaign to educate parents to put the baby on their back to sleep because it was known that putting them on their belly was a risk factor for SIDS. There was public service campaigns, announcements, back to sleep was very catchy. And within five years of that public health campaign, the prevalence of SIDS decreased like 30%. That's a huge public health success story. And I think we can't underestimate the importance of messaging and messaging to the public in a way that they receive the message and it makes sense and they change their behavior. In a way, it's actionable. That's right. Mm -hmm. You know, they, I've been asked this question so many times over my career is what age do I start my child going to the dentist? And I couldn't agree with you more, Catherine. I don't think people really understand and know that answer. And from a standpoint of the public health messaging, how can we as professionals do a better job at getting that messaging out? What can we do? So I think it's a combined effort of 
integration within the medical system. And so really having in, in Massachusetts, it's now integrated into the medical system in the Medicaid program, MassHealth, that physicians provide or at least ensure that everyone under the age of 21 has a fluoride varnish application at least twice a year. Now that could be in the medical or the dental office. So ideally what we want to see is that physicians who see these 90% of kids are saying to the parents, it's really important to get your child into the dentist by the time of their first birthday. And here's why. And then trying to make those connections. Now, the other side of this is that we need the dentist to be able to accept the young kids and treat the young kids in their practice. And we did a survey here in Massachusetts and we found that not surprisingly, a lot of dentists weren't comfortable with that because they don't feel like they're well-trained and schooled to see these young kids. So in Massachusetts, I'm actually collaborating with a colleague, Michelle Henshaw at BU, where we're trying to educate dentists about how important it is and really how simple it is. If you see a child at age one, they're not going to have a lot of problems. And then if you provide preventive care, educate parents and caregivers, really important, and see them regularly, you're going to prevent those kids from having dental disease and going to the operating room. So it really takes messaging, education of parents and caregivers, commitment by both the medical and dental community to make this a priority so that kids do get a dental home by age one. Maria, is that music to our ears? Might we be breaking down those walls between medicine and dentistry and connecting the dots? Oh, wouldn't that be the world that I want to wake up to? Isn't that the future we want to create? All of us we're creating. And I, I love the connection because I can't help but also call out that everything that Catherine is describing is not only sound public health policies, but it also happens to be good business. We know that over... $3 billion are spent every year on ED visits related to non-traumatic oral health pain. So if we had routine dental visits, those patients who make it to the ED wouldn't have needed to be there. And so being able to engage families early on, as early as starting to do family planning, when a mom is considering building a family, we talk about IVF and we talk about all kinds of other new things and health-related things, but we never actually talk about starting to think about your oral health. And by the time the woman is pregnant, it's too late. You have infection, you have inflammation, you have caries, and that increases the chances of preterm labor significantly. And so to me, I just wanted to bring in that awareness that it's not only the right thing to do for our communities and our families, but if we are on the payer side of the equation and we're looking to get paid for keeping people healthy and keeping people out of the ED, that makes business sense too. Maybe perhaps I'll ask Catherine, have you seen any examples? And Medicaid is a great example for that as a value-based, if you will, contracts, risk contract. But give us some examples where you're seeing early intervention or oral health interventions leading to better, high quality outcomes overall in oral health. Yeah, and I think that evidence from programs, I think Oregon has really been at the forefront of this with their value-based models and incentivizing providers for providing the preventive care, getting the child into a dental home. That is only going to benefit everyone, as you said, Maria, the child, the family, the payer, the system. We're not overburdening an already overburdened healthcare system with using up hospital rooms for a completely preventable disease. So I think that there's so much evidence around early 
prevention, intervention in the dental system, that we just need to expand it, expand it, expand it. I think we also need to look at our delivery system and see what we can do differently. For example, as you mentioned, Maria, I went to both dental hygiene school and dental school. And so I know what the training is like in both. And dental hygienists have very rigorous training. And I think if we should could add another optionally, a year, maybe 15 months, maybe 18 months, those details can be worked out. But to incorporate into the dental hygiene curriculum more restorative training so that these are individuals who can add, similar to nurse practitioners, they can augment the dental care delivery system in such a way that we increase the number of providers to meet the needs of the underserved. Because as you know, we still have significant health disparities in this country and we need to address that. And I think it's really multifactorial. We need system changes, education, payer models that would incentivize this behavior. So there's lots of things I think that we can be looking at. And the time is now. We can't delay this anymore. Yeah. And to get to the point of what can we individually, all of us do as parents, as patients, because going to the dentist is typically associated with a brighter smile. or And again, goes back to all of us who are part of this community of this industry to reframe what going to the dentist means and what taking care of your oral health means. And by the way, you could take care of your oral health. It doesn't necessarily require you to go to the dentist if you're doing preventative care because it all starts with nutrition. It starts with lifestyle changes that are not necessarily associated with spending two hours in the dental chair every month, unless you absolutely need them to. I don't know. But how do we, in terms of our call to action and all of us as patients, as community leaders, as decision makers who hire and employ all these, oh, so many employees and people, what can we be doing differently to be able to action on this knowledge, if you will? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So I think one of the things is to make sure that dental is incorporated into wellness plans in organizations that offer the benefits. And maybe talk to people about the importance of it. Like you said, it's not just going and getting a bright smile. It's really what you do at home, because at the end of the day, if you're not taking care of your team and you go to the dentist twice a year, three times a year, Things are not going to improve unless you have good oral hygiene, healthy eating habits, limit the sugary snacks and carbohydrates. So it really is a partnership between the individual and their healthcare provider. And the burden is on us to really provide education in a way that's digestible and meaningful to the public. So I think all of that, there's work to do in all of those areas, the system, the education, increasing that understanding amongst the public about the importance of oral health. Maria, I, I want to jump in on where Catherine went with the expansive role, potentially, of the hygienist. As a clinician myself, I have always felt that the hygienist, I like to say, is the rock star of the dental practice. They are the best communicators. They have great amount of time to focus the patient on the necessary things to be preventative. We understand, we all know that the more upstream we can get with diseases, the more of a wellness approach we can take versus a sickness approach, not waiting for diseases to take hold, the healthier our community is going to be. And that goes for all of healthcare. But Catherine, what are the obstacles to be able to make that radical change where there is that NT, that nurse practitioner corollary in dentistry and oral health? How can that happen? Because it seems like such a smart approach and a great answer 
to a lot of our oral health crisis that we see in the United States. Yeah, I think that this issue has been more kind of politicized than actually really having people take a deep look at. So, for example, we have many more dental hygiene schools in this country than dental schools, over 300, I'm sure. So we have an infrastructure in place. We have an infrastructure to educate in place. Additionally, dental hygienists are very well-trained. And as you alluded to, Jonathan, they also have a wonderful rapport with their patients. People trust their hygienists. They listen to them. They want to make sure they follow their recommendations, et cetera. So here we already have a group that is so dedicated to prevention and optimal oral health. If we give them the tools to expand that even more, I think we're able to make some significant changes. If we look at the nurse practitioner movement as an example, that movement started in the 1960s. And currently, there are more nurse practitioners than there are dentists. There are about 200,000 dentists in the U.S., and there are over 350,000 nurse practitioners for a relatively young profession, if you think about it historically. So I really think the model is there. And what we need to do in the dental profession is to take that model and incorporate it. We have the infrastructure. We have these wonderful dental hygiene programs across the country. I think we need to put our heads together and have payers and policymakers, dental hygiene associations, dental associations come together around this common goal and really build consensus and not have it be something that's polarizing. And if there are disagreements, well, let's have the discussion. Let's have those discussions. Let's have the difficult conversations. Let's come together and build consensus because we do need to change the system. There are many people who aren't getting any dental care and that's not going to change until we change the system. Doesn't this go to the heart of mindset? Doesn't this go to the heart of scarcity mindset versus an abundance mindset that we have in every profession worried about, oh, you're taking away from me. But isn't it that people don't understand that the more we do that, we open up the field, the profession is elevated. Our care for our patients is so much better. It's just this greater abundance that we're all going to see. Isn't it here? Isn't it the mindset that people have, as you call it, the politicizing of this issue? Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more because there is that mindset of like, oh, maybe they're taking business away from me or something like that. But it's not, there's so much need around, number one. And if you look at the nurse practitioner movement, I mean, nurse practitioners have increased their revenue in the practices in which they work because let's face it, you now have two providers who can provide care. And so the, in this case, the dentist can work on the more complicated, elaborate cases and allow for the simpler procedures to be done by this very well-educated, well-trained partner in their practice. And also what I'd love to see, and, and I think we can see this, is that we encourage people from both sides, the dentist and the advanced hygiene practitioner, to also bring that care to the people in need who maybe aren't coming in to the dental office. I can give an example of when I was with MassHealth where we, you know, we made sure that every member, every MassHealth member had a dentist and actually two dentists within five miles of their home. Now, if you take care of cost and you take care of proximity to a dentist, you would think that that would increase the utilization, but there's still barriers. And I often call these invisible barriers that we haven't yet seen through. And so we have to do a better job of trying to understand those barriers and being creative about how to address them. It's not 
just saying we need more providers so someone can come to an office. We need more providers so someone can also be out in the community in a more creative way, providing care. And, and if you provide that preventive care and then make referrals to the community dentist, it's a partnership. So it's not taking away, it's connecting people to care and it's providing more care, which only provides more revenue. It's so smart. It's almost like uh, this hub and spoke structure where you have this greater coverage out in the community that's necessary that really a lot of professionals don't want to go into because of the economics. And now we're creating a much different economic model. What you described really addressing the heart of the issue, which is to get access to care, to put professionals out in the field as an outreach type of structure. And that's why I related to a hub and spoke. And then as they, the people would need more sophisticated dentistry that could go back into the hub and everybody wins. I look at that similar to our Globe Good Foundation, where we've gone down to Eleuther, down to the Bahamas. We're out in the schools with the public health teams. And then we bring the children into our clinic where we can do these more aggressive procedures where they need treatment. So we're really looking to, in your model, expand the workforce in a very intelligent way. And a not costly way either. You know, people do come out with a lot of student debt. If you cut down that education to the, you know, to the simple services that you know, hygienists are very well trained clinically and their hand skills are, they are really rigorously trained. I can attest to that. It's really <laughs> rigorous and the hand skills are excellent and they're so dedicated. Why wouldn't we be looking to them as a resource to build our infrastructure of the dental care delivery system as partners, true partners, just like nurse practitioners? If you talk to people who see nurse practitioners, everyone loves their nurse practitioner. Right. They trust them. They provide excellent care. We can do the same thing with our dental hygiene workforce. We have a very dedicated dental hygiene workforce, and I would just love to see that expand. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think about the evolution of the hygienist, the evolution of the dentist, and the evolution of the dental office, how it transports itself from the dental clinic to the community, to the school. And I still remember a recent example, we were on an accelerator program. One of the companies in the accelerator program is called Grin, and they take a simple 3D printed attachment and they put it on top of the iPhone camera that allows that iPhone to now become an intraoral camera and take pretty high resolution images and videos of the mouth. Mm-hmm. And so a team of hygienists armed with that iPhone with the attachment, the grin attachment, mm-hmm. was able to go to a high school gym and deliver screenings for kids and patients. And now you have a six-year-old that's actually getting excited about the gamification of putting this device in their mouth and be able to see the video and then show the video to their friend. And now we're talking about engagement and it's fun and it happens in a high school gym. And then This video gets to be sent asynchronously to a dentist and the dentist could still provide a diagnosis and potentially a treatment plan. But it was fascinating, even from that one example, to see how for that one day, Apple Tree Dental, the clinics that actually the organization who led that campaign, saw a 30% increase in their applications for Medicaid because the experience Mm -hmm. wasn't scary. All these kids were signing up and their parents were signing up for Medicaid because it was 
a quality experience that was fun and that was meeting them in their community. And so thinking about that future of dentistry, which I believe is outside of the dental chair, it's in the community. You go to the dentist for more extensive restorative procedures and you take your oral health prevention in your community. So in order to deliver that type of care, inevitably we need to evolve our care team, right? Because it includes, frankly, the school nurse. It includes the nurse practitioner. It includes, as Jonathan has demonstrated that in Eleuthera, it also includes the school board and the teachers to talk about how you brush your teeth. And so that to me is a very interesting model of the future. And I'm wondering how we accelerate the adoption and accelerate the ability to scale. Because somebody could look at it and say, well, Maria, this was one community in Minnesota, or this was one community in Eleuthera. It's so easy to do that in Eleuthera when the Minister of Education, the Minister of Transportation, and Minister of Health are all live on the same street or on the same person, right? So how do we think about that cross-siloed connected care of the future so we could scale it faster here? I think that's fascinating. And I think the combination of technology, yeah. the personnel, trained personnel, and those collaborations that you mentioned, it's not just within the dental community that we need to have support for this. It is the community. It is the school boards and the principals and all of that. And many of my colleagues who've been working in school-based programs in this country will tell you that if you don't have the school nurse and the school principal on board, your program's not going to be successful. So we do have to be much broader in our thinking about who are the stakeholders, who are the people who can help to bring this to the community because they have the trust already of the community. And how can we work with trusted community members to innovate and introduce new technology that is only going to make access easier? As you described, having an intraoral camera with high resolution that can be sent to a dentist and say, this child needs such and such, or this adult needs such and such. And then you make that connection. So you're doing the screening for the dentist. The dentist then will do the more comprehensive diagnostic exam and a treatment plan, but you're making that connection. And I think it really does take a village. You really do have to have a lot of these partners around the table to make it work. And add the technology to that, it just can increase it exponentially, right? That's exactly where I was going. I love where the conversation goes because Catherine and Maria, where does technology play here? for the amplification of what we're talking about. So as we think about AI, we think about telemedicine and teledentistry, we think about companies, these innovative companies like Grin and at CareQuest, Marie, this is your heartbeat of what you do. Where will technology take us very quickly to create the democratization of care and address this inequality in our industry? I think Technology is going to, in my view, put technology in three categories. Technology that optimizes activities like claims processing. You have a process, the AI algorithm will make it faster. That's the category of use cases, if you will. Technology that optimizes care. There's a second category that is technology that transforms care. So if I needed to get an x-ray to see early lesions and now there's the technology blue powder on my teeth that changes color based on their lesion, that's a transforming technology. And it doesn't have to be AI, doesn't have to be an algorithm, could be a peptide. It's a technology that transforms the experience or the delivery of care. And the third one is the technology that disrupts. 
the technology that completely eliminates the need for a step in the process or eliminates the need for restorative procedures like a filling when you could actually catch the caries, the early lesion early and intervene with P114 like products like Curadon. So I think about technologies and breakthrough in that spectrum from optimizing to transforming to disrupting. And I think that we need all three of them in parallel because there's different levels of risk tolerance and adoption across all three. So I'm hoping that I'm answering your question because I also the other thing is we can't just say AI is the future or image recognition is the future because technologies need to build on each other and mutually reinforce each other. Otherwise, they're shiny new toy. And so I think about what is the use case? Does it optimize, transform or disrupt? And then how we could then bring it to the patient. That's beautiful. Well stated. OTD, Optimize, Transform and Disrupt. We got an acronym there, but back to Catherine on the public health side, from your perspective on the public health side, tell us how you feel the technology will drive the day for us to create this equality in healthcare. Yeah, I love everything that Maria just said. And something you said earlier too, Maria, is that the kids were excited about this. So there's the acceptance and the simplifying of things for the patient, for the person who needs the care. And I think the more we can do that, we're going to increase access. If we have technology that allows us to extend the reach of the dental office way into the community, that would is much less costly in terms of time and money spent than having providers all over the community, which of course is something we want. But if technology can enhance that, simplify it, decrease the time and effort that's placed on the provider, and yet still get that information back to the provider and get the individual excited about going to the provider, that's a win-win-win situation. And I think technology plays a crucial role here. And I love that you mentioned this grin technology. And there are brilliant people out there doing great things and creating technologies that can only make it easier for connecting individuals to the care they need. Yeah. Extending the reach of the dental office. That is quote unquote with a couple of underliners because that is exactly what this technology and the new breakthroughs are going to do. And, And isn't it exciting that what's happening in dentistry and oral health is you have people from the outside of the industry leaning in, whether it's from genomics to technology like AI to even people with a Harvard MBA who all of a sudden decided to go into dentistry. Somebody I know <laughs> on this call. Very subtle. <laughs> We're starting to get some fantastic momentum in changing this course of inequality and changing it for the better to get to a level playing field for overall health. Yeah. So. That's very exciting. It really is. And why we have this podcast, Maria, don't you think? To expose these ideas and speak to people like Catherine Hayes out of Harvard, who's leading the charge. Catherine, a question I'd like to ask, and just a little bit of a pivot from what we're talking about now, is as you're training these future leaders, these aspiring leaders of public health, what are you excited about with these people who are going into this aspect of our profession? What I'm excited about is their commitment, like their desire to really make a difference. And also someone who's much older than my students, their connection to technology and the way that they use technology in their daily lives, which was not 
part of my training early on, I get excited listening to them. I get excited listening to Maria talk about this grin system that you talked about. Like technology is going to help us. And I love the idea too. And Maria is a perfect example of having people who come in from outside the dental profession with their brilliance and help to bring innovation from other areas into the dental care delivery system. That is really, I think, remarkable, much needed. And I think that's going to be one of the kind of magic catalysts for change. Oh, I love that. I've been called many things magic catalyst, <laughs> adding this to the list. One of my favorite, probably. And I would have to point out that it would not have been possible if the dental community was not as welcoming and open to input from outsiders, if you will. And I've been, as I like to share with our listeners, I'm a newcomer to oral health. And in the two years that I've been here, I've seen so many experts and deep thinkers who are open to a different perspective and who are welcoming to and patient to sit down and explain how things are done and why things are done this way. And some of those conversations, when you ask the basic, most fundamental questions, and by the time you ask the third why, there's an aha moment for both sides. And so I, I think this has been really a learning opportunity. And I've been really, I accept that with a great appreciation for the dental community and the oral health community of how welcoming it has been and how eager to share best practices and experiences. So Jonathan, that goes back to you. Yeah. In here. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I'll, I'll take full credit for you being here. But, um, <laughs> Love it. That's pretty funny. Let's ask why. Why is this happening now? It's so instructive to do a little bit of a look back right now. Look at the trends that have been developing over the last kind of seven to 10 years. And we talk about maybe a convergence of trends. So I just ask Catherine and you, Maria, what are the convergence of these trends that are happening today that has this opportunity to really transform and change the industry? And also that Maria and I are so and we are all committed to is breaking down the walls between medicine and dentistry. So let's talk about the trends right now of what's happening in the, in the industry that's leading us to this point where we're feeling this radical change is in the air. Catherine, do you want to start? Or I'll, sure. I'll, so, I'll, we can ping pong. I'll take yeah. I'll, you'll share one and I'll share the second one and then you go to the third one. You go with the first. Yes. So I think one of the things that's really happening is that these oral health disparities are not improving. There has to be a different way. And I think people are realizing we have got to figure out how to provide better access and better equitable care. So I think there's a real urgency to finding a way, finding a solution. I'll build on that. I think we're seeing, and everybody talks about the empowered patient. I think over the years, there has been this proportionate or information dissymmetry between the patient and the care team, the surgeon, the primary care doctor, the specialist. And patients have always been in the position of information asymmetry where you don't know as much as your provider, as your doctor. You don't dare question or have an opinion on your care. I think technology has allowed us to A, share information more freely and B, get access to experts and second opinions and additional input that is available to patients. And you don't have to be an, a specialist or an expert to get access to those data, this information. So technology has played the role of an equalizer in democratizing access to information. 
and patients, those who are engaged or empowered to play a stronger role in their care team. We saw that in healthcare. We're seeing, I believe we're going to start seeing that more and more in oral health and the relationship that patients will have with their dentist. In my view, it's my hope and my ambition that it would transform from a relationship with a dentist to a relationship with an oral health physician that's part of their team. So that's the consumer impact. The empowered patient is probably the trend that I would call it. I want to throw one in. I want to throw one in since since we're ping-ponging. Yes. I think that this organized approach to dentistry and the dental delivery system that's developing where it's moving away from the one dentist, one assistant, one hygienist, where the dentist has to have, first of all, has to wear so many hats to be successful from clinician to great leader, to great business person, to understand all of these component pieces of building businesses. To now we have this organized approach, you know, whether we call it the DSO, dental service organization or invisible DSOs, we have very organized business people leading in on the profession. And if done correctly, my caveat, we have an opportunity to elevate the level of care and we have a place for this emerging young dentists who are leaving dental school with all these hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt to be able to join forces in more of a village team approach to the delivery of care would potentially lend itself to then lean in on the disparities of oral health. As Catherine was talking about earlier, where you have dentists that are embracing the Medicaid model. There are DSOs that embrace the Medicaid model that are successful, that are financially sustainable, and they're going into areas that don't have access or great access to care. So I think there's something very positive about this new emerging innovative uh, business model that takes uh, some wonderful intelligence to the profession instead of the solo dentist trying to find their way to success. It's all about extending the reach of the dental team. How do you scale? How do you provide infrastructure? And I think the DSOs are one answer to that. Caring the community is another answer to that. Maybe changing or evolving our curriculum for medical and dental school is another way to extend the reach of the dental team, which leads me to, we have the privilege today to have a hygienist, a dentist, an academic, a dental director. So Catherine, with your chair of a department head on in one of the leading institutions training the future dentists at the next generation of dentists, what do you see as the role of education in advancing some of those new models of delivery of dentistry? That's such a great question. I think that really exposing our students to the full breadth of the dental profession, which includes these innovative technologies that are coming in. I think there is kind of an excitement in the air that change is possible because there is more of a collaboration amongst a wider variety of stakeholders and experts to look at this issue, including both of you, and really looking at how broad we have to be if we're going to meet the needs of the public and how open-minded we need to be to change. Change is something that a lot of people are afraid of, but change can actually be quite invigorating. And I always say change is a process, not an event. It does take time. It takes collaboration. It takes innovation. And I think exposing students to all of these aspects of the dental delivery system and creating a mindset, to get back to your point earlier, Jonathan, 
of being excited about change instead of being afraid of it. And let's face it, these students, I tell them all the time, they're going to see lots of changes over their career, more so than I saw in my career, because there's so much more technology and innovation that's coming into the system that can only make things better. That is such a great note. It doesn't speak to personal growth, constant learning, and really inspiring each other to be the best we can be. And uh, Catherine, you're at the heartbeat of that for sure at Harvard, at the public health level to make these changes and to really graduate these future leaders of the profession to help make sustainable change to improve everyone's lives. Very, it's so exciting. Well, Maria, let's bring us to a beautiful summary. Yes, on that happy note. Yes, on that happy note of the future leaders of the dental profession being shaped by leaders like Dr. Catherine Hayes. I think that's as optimistic and as positive as we could be. I just also had an aha moment that there is a very consistent theme across all the guest speakers and thought leaders that we bring to this program, which is we all believe that change is a process, not an event. And we all get energized by change because change is the only constant. There's no such thing that lasts forever. And so that's probably the biggest takeaway on the current that I hear across all our programs and episodes so far. With that, grateful for your time, Catherine, today, as usual, grateful for your insights, Jonathan. And thank you. Yeah. Until the next time. Thank you, Maria. And thank you, Catherine, for joining us on the Think Oral Health Podcast. Thank you both for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to the Think Oral Podcast. For the show notes and resources from today's podcast, visit us at www.outcomesrocket.health thinkoral or start a conversation with us on social media. Until then, keep smiling and connecting care.